Welcome to the fifth episode of the podcast. I'm still reeling over last weekend's fight between Ahmed Khan and Kell Brook. I did a preview on my blog and upon breaking down the fight and, you know, all the, all the variables that I felt would influence the fight, like the weight, the training camp, the resume, the home advantage, everything was in Khan's favor. So I priced this up as a 50-50 fight. And since Ahmed was the underdog, I thought there was real value in backing him. And unfortunately, it turned out not to be the case. Kel seemed to wind back the clock. He looked terrific in there. But you can't help but feel that was in large part helped by how old Khan looked. You know, his legs you know, were gone. His stamina was gone. His timing and reflexes were gone. And his game plan seemingly went out the window and got dragged into a wall from the first round, which is exactly what I warned about uh, in the preview. So hindsight's always twenty twenty, And now that we've seen things unfold the way they did, it's easier to look back and see why the fight panned out the way it did. And one variable which I really overlooked, and I did speak about it on my preview also, but didn't give it that much weight, was Omri Khan's inactivity. And in his post-fight interview, he really drove that point home when he said, the love for the sport isn't there anymore. And I believe him. You see, Omri's been a professional fighter since he was 18. He debuted in 2005. That's a 22-year campaign as a professional fighter. Sorry, no, it's not. <laughs> my bad. My math's, uh, my math's a little off. 17 years, sorry. That's 17 years as a professional fighter. That's a lot of miles on the clock. And yes, Kel's been pro a similar sort of time, but he hasn't been fighting the same level of opposition over a sustained period as Arme has. And that's of no fault of his own, of course. Kel's triumphed over every challenge at British and European level, but he didn't really get his chance to shine on the world stage till 2014 when he fought Sean Porter. Armour, on the other hand, he was thrusted into the limelight almost immediately. And his trajectory to, start, to stardom is almost unrivaled in boxing. The level he's been fighting at over a sustained period, winning multiple world titles in his early 20s, fighting the best 140-pounders and 147-pounders in his 20s, getting into toe-to-toe wars with big punches. All this stuff catches up. And one can even argue that he may have peaked very early in his career. I mean, what he achieved in a few short years, most fighters don't achieve half of that over the course of their whole career. That's a lot to handle for a kid in his early 20s, and there's really nothing to prepare you for that. When he was world champion and when he was considered elite, he was a gym rat, deep in the trenches in Roach's gym, regularly sparring with Pacquiao, fighting at least twice a year and taking on the best. But in the latter part of his career, he did prioritize other commitments with regards to his charitable work, his traveling around the world. You know, he's a family man now. He's changed trainers several times over the past few years, and he's taken many many sporadic breaks between fights, taking a year off or even two in this case. I think it was three years, actually. I think he last fought in 2019. So all things considered, it's no wonder why we haven't seen the Khan of old recently. And when you consider the fact that Ahmed's fighting style does rely almost entirely on his raw athleticism, he is amongst the fastest pair of hands in boxing. And if you're not living the life which he hasn't as of late, all that time off is going to inevitably catch up, as it showed last weekend. He gave it one last roll of the dice, and I have no doubt he worked flat out in camp, and it showed. 
he took some serious shots, so we know he was in shape. And I also hope that puts to bed any rumors about his chin. But like I said, all those sporadic years in and out of boxing in the latter part of his career has caught up. And eight weeks, you know, eight weeks of training is not going to undo all the rust, you know, that's set in for all that time out the ring. This is a game of fine margins. And once the athleticism slows down, the legs get weaker, the punch resistance slows, it's just an uphill battle from there. And unfortunately, some fighters struggle with retirement, as we've seen too often. You know, legends in the ring like Shane Mosley, Roy Jones, David Hay, Ricky Hatton, fighters who, you know, rely a lot on athleticism, just to mention a few, they go on too long and let the sport beat them into retirement. And I really hope that doesn't happen with Amir because, you know, he said so himself, the love isn't there anymore. He's achieved all his dreams. He's secured generational wealth. He's a family man. And finally, he's created a fine, lasting legacy especially amongst the British-Asian community and British boxing. And that's really what I want to speak about in this episode today. You see, Omar Khan is a first-generation British-Pakistani. And being of similar heritage myself, I know that we haven't really had many, if any, role models to look up to in sport, least of all boxing. You see, Asians are typically of smaller build than that of other races, so it's intimidating having to learn how to fight. I remember a guy who used to box and, you know, I'm going back. This is when I was around 15 or 16. And he told me the first gym he used to go to, which, by the way, was in a sort of, you know, quite an Asian area. The owner of the first day said, Packies aren't really allowed it. So as if the deck wasn't already stacked against us, we now got to deal with this. And, you know, I grew up playing golf. And similarly, when I was playing as a junior, there were literally no Asians a lot of Asians play now, but back then, not you know, there wasn't really that many. They'd be the token, you know, Asian guy, but nobody really. And sometimes other juniors would insult me. They'll call me Paki and, you know, make all kind of racial insults. Even some adult members would do the same thing and tell me I don't belong here. And I went to a mixed school, you know, a very mixed school. So I'd never heard anyone talk to me like this before. <laughs> so, you know, hearing this kind of stuff at the golf club, I was surprised and I was angry, but when you're a kid, there's really nothing you can do. Now as an adult, you'd be damned if you think I'd let that slide. But honestly speaking, it's more embarrassing for them than it is for me. And things have come things have come an awful long way in the last 15 to 20 years. Arguably too far in the opposite direction now where everyone has to police what they say or you could get cancelled, which is exactly what my last podcast episode was about. And in relation to that, I don't believe anyone should get cancelled unless they're inciting violence. Because at the end of the day, even if you do cancel someone for their thoughts, you can't change the way they think. They're still going to think it. And you also have to appreciate that often people say things out of anger. They just want to get under your skin. And because race has become so politicized, it's an easy way of triggering people. But what I am thankful for is that nobody has ever stopped me from doing anything on racial grounds. No one's ever said, you can't play golf here or you can't eat there. And I'm not saying people don't get discriminated against on racial grounds. It's probably more covert now, but at least society acknowledges that it's unacceptable and it's a lot easier to go about doing anything now without being discriminated against than it was, you know, perhaps 20, 20 plus years ago. And for that, I'm thankful to be born in England. You know, I absolutely love this country. It's a country where every opportunity has been at my fingertips. 
you know, as I said, I know the media and politicians really like to politicize and weaponize race, but I absolutely don't see Britain as a racist country. I love this country. Things could be better. Things could be better, of course, but they could be hell of a lot worse. But without going off tangent, you know, having heard of Amir, and I think he's around five or so year, five or so years older than me. I was around twelve, and he was he was seventeen, and I remember the buzz amongst you know my dad and you know his family, my cousins and whatnot, that a Pakistani seventeen year old kid is going to represent Team Great Britain. And as crazy as an achievement that was, you know, to be honest, no one was really that hopeful. I mean, we hadn't really heard of him. But to make the Olympic squad, that was an achievement in and of itself. <laughs> but as he kept beating everyone round by round and eventually just missed out on gold, only by losing to Cuban legend Mario Kinderland, who he later went on to beat, by the way. So to secure a silver medal at 17 was a monumental achievement in and of itself. But for a British Pakistani to do it, it was unheard of. Now, when people think of British Pakistanis, you think of taxi drivers, corner shops, you know, small businesses, kebab shops, cricket. But boxing? You know, a Pakistani kid with a thick Bolton accent waving the flag for Great Britain? <laughs> it was literally a, a, a glitch in the matrix, so to speak. And I remember his name spreading like wildfire, the sponsorship, you know, Frank Warren and Sky on his side. And whether Ame did it knowingly or unknowingly, he has pioneered and has given hope to young men of British Pakistani heritage by paving the way and thereby making it possible for others to follow suit. You'd now be hard-pressed to step into most boxing gyms in Asian dense areas like London, Manchester, Birmingham, Nottingham, Bradford and so forth and not see Pakistani fighters. There's now swathes of young uh, British Asian fighters, a lot of them who are extremely talented too. And Arme is even giving these guys a platform as we saw in the undercard of his fights last week. Fight gyms up and down the country are now actively encouraging people of all backgrounds to take part and as a result we're seeing talent pop up from every demographic. And just on an identity level, Armour is not a genetic anomaly. He's not a six foot five heavyweight bully. He's not a brawler. He's a guy of slight build, like many Asian kids, smaller than the average white guy or black guy, someone who we can look at and relate to. He's a regular looking chap from a regular look from a regular working class background, but with an extraordinary ambition, work ethic, talent and bravery. Young Asian men, because of Arme, have now found an acceptable route to express their masculinity through boxing, a sport traditionally dominated by white and black males of working class background in Britain. Arme has broken that historic mold, and we can't downplay his role in this. How many people are boxing because of David Hay, or Carl Froch, or Tyson Fury, or Frank Bruno, to name a few? All iconic British fighters in their own right. But Ame has pulled on the heartstrings of probably the second or third biggest demographic in this country by giving confidence, a sense of masculinity, identity and hope to them in ways that no fighter has done before that. And he's achieved that because he's one of us. One could argue it's not so dissimilar to what Tiger Woods did in golf to an extent. 
a young black kid becoming the best girlfriend in the world in a sport that's traditionally dominated by, you know, middle class, middle aged white men. And once upon a time, he was told as a junior, you don't belong here. Now, Tiger wasn't the first black man to excel on the PGA Tour, but he certainly had the biggest impact impact, and inspired a whole new generation of youth from an entirely new demographic to try their hand at a sport that was typically reserved for a certain race. So, I mean, you know, he's, he's achieved everything as a professional, and if there's any positives to take away from his last fight, it's that he's willing to stand in front of you and bang. He's not scared to fight anyone. And you have to laugh at the critics and haters. For so many years, Arm has been heckled about the Kilbrook fight. They've called him scared. They've called him called him an embarrassment and whatnot. And when he finally does take the fight, they say, oh, he's doing it for a payday. <laughs> damned if you do, damned if you don't. First of all, don't we all go to work for a payday? <laughs> Isn't the point of plying your trade, working to earn the most money possible? Do people genuinely forget that this also applies to boxers? These guys are prize fighters. This isn't a charity exhibition. They fight for money. And of course, they want the biggest payday. Did you forget that Kel Brook was also chasing a payday? He went up to light middleweight once. He was mandatory for a world title and ducked the then champion Jarrett Hurd because he wanted more money. The casuals forget that because it's convenient. And by the way, in case people are going to accuse me of being a fanboy, do I think the fight should have happened a long time ago? Absolutely. But here's the thing. Boxing is more than just a sport. It's a business. It's not tennis. It's not golf. Where Tiger's going to go toe-to-toe with Phil Mickelson and Vijay Singh and Ernie Els and whatnot several times throughout his career. Or Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal and Djokovic, they're going to face each other several times in their career. Or even football, where Liverpool are going to play United many times over the course of the respective players' careers. Boxing is a business where, more often than not, you only get one shot, one opportunity to face an opponent. Rarely twice, let alone three times. And Armour is a smart, shrewd businessman who's made excellent moves. Prior to the Kell Brook fight, he fought Canelo and made over $10 million for that fight. He also fought Terence Crawford and made over $5 million for that fight. Had he fought Kell and lost to Kell six or seven years ago, he would never have had a chance at Crawford or Canelo, the two pound-for-pound best fighters in the world. Kell is a real threat. He's a danger and he's a big risk. So like I said, had he lost that fight, that's $15 million worth of uh, you know, worth of paychecks in two fights, he would have foregone. Like I said earlier in the episode, Armand knows he's in the latter part of his career, and he even said so himself that he's only willing to get out of bed for the big fights. Those Canelo and Crawford fights would never have happened if he if he lost to Kel. Kel is a big risk. Armand always knew this. However, the Kel fight will always be there, as Kel isn't going anywhere, and it will always be big. As last weekend proved to be. Ahmed lost to Crawford and Canelo and still sold out the Manchester men MEN Arena in, in a record 20 seconds and secured, I think, what was close to another $10 million payday. So he's milked the latter part of his career for all it's worth and he has absolutely every right to do so and good luck to him. 
Kel, by the way, is a prize fighter who also fights for the highest pay, in case you weren't aware. And he hasn't hidden his intentions of cashing out his last days either. And guess what? He deserves it. You know, what really grates me the most is when one of our own turns professional and starts out. We always wish them the best and we hope they make it. We cheer them on. We support them. The media's on their side. The fans are on their side. And as soon as they start making things happen and they start getting a little bit of success and they start getting attention, slowly people's attitudes start to change. Oh, he's getting arrogant. They say he's getting too big for his boots. He's overrated. He needs to slow down, blah, blah, blah. And God forbid, when that kid eventually does go on to be truly successful and fulfill everything that was expected of him. And even the stuff the fans supposedly hoped he'd go on to achieve. (laughs) People's jealousy turns into outright rage. Then they start saying, you know what? I can't stand that guy. He's not one of us. I hope he fails. And God forbid, when he does fall, people then feel sorry for them. Then they start saying, oh, we're with you. We stand with you. Chin up, champ. And that points to a sad part of human nature. And that's, what, and that's you know, we, we as people, we love, then destroy, then love again. People cheer you on on the way up. And when you do make it, they hope and pray on your downfall. And when you do fall, they start to feel sorry for you. We love, then destroy, then love. And it happens all the time. It hasn't just happened with Armin. We've done it to all our, you know, supposed icons or heroes or whatnot. Now, since I spoke of Tiger Woods earlier, for argument's sake, I'll use him again. When he was the best in the world, when he was untouchable, when we literally ran out of superlatives to describe how great he was, the media was hoping and praying for a way to find a chink in his armor. And when his marriage affairs hit the headlines, the media were foaming at the mouth over it. And then when his marriage fell apart, his injury set in and he hit rock bottom, the same media outlets were wishing him well. It's crazy. It's crazy. Now the thing with Armin is, yes, he is one of our own and the media was on the side, the fans were on his side. We did wish him well and we were happy when he made it. But, you know, one could argue maybe he didn't endear himself to the British public the same way other fighters have done because he chose to go to America. But, you know, there's always a price to pay when you go to fight in the States and base your career in the States. But like I said, you know, Armin is a a great businessman and he's built a fantastic brand around his name. Which he, you know, he just couldn't do, perhaps, in Britain at the time. So there was a price to pay, but the point still stands. You know, there's no reason for a lot of the British public to turn on them, to turn on him, excuse me, the way they did. But like I said, you know, going to America to build your brand, you know, there is a price to pay. And you know what? It's one thing when fans and media are tearing you apart, but when fellow professionals are kicking you while you're down, you know, there's no words to describe how low that is. You'd think that they'd be able to empathize with the struggles and decisions that a fellow professional fighter has to make. And when Ahmed lost last week, and you see the likes of Carl Froch tearing him to pieces. It's just sad. I can't stand Carl Froch, by the way. Just an insufferable a-hole. <laughs> he rarely, if ever, says anything positive about anyone. And when he does, he does it in such a sarcastic, backhanded way. Where he pays you a compliment with one hand and takes it back with the other. Just a pure egomaniac. And you can tell he's got a real inferiority 
complexes. He never got that celebrity A-list treatment the way David Hay or Amir Khan did. And maybe to an extent didn't get the same respect as a fighter as he was always in the shadows of Andre Ward. And people don't want, really want to put him in the same category as Joe Calzaghe. Now, despite what I think about Cole as a person, and I don't know him, I'm just going off his media persona, by the way. I genuinely rate him as one of you know, the best British fighters I've ever seen. He's tougher than a coffin nail. Not the most athletic or technically gifted, but tough. A real hard worker and overachiever to an extent. And he really shined in an era of tough, tough super middleweights. So I can be objective. I can respect him as a fighter, but not exactly a guy I'd want to hang around with from what I've seen anyway. Maybe he is a great guy and real person. But, you know, when Ahmed Khan lost, you know, he gives a disclaimer before every interview that, look, I'm just being honest. I'm just giving my, you know, just giving the honest, hard truth. I'm just giving my opinion. And then he just goes on to tear people to shreds. You know, knowing it's probably his last fight, he pays the odd compliment, then takes it back and just tears him up. You know, being honest isn't excuse isn't an excuse to just be a straight up arsehole, as people mistakenly think. But again, without meaning to veer off tangent, you don't have to like someone. You know, the point I'm making is that you don't have to like someone in order to acknowledge and respect their achievements. And unfortunately, so many people often mix the two. So whatever you think about Amir Khan, you can't ignore what he's done. Has he made mistakes? Absolutely. He's done silly things. He's said silly things. But people are so quick to judge others when they've done far worse things in their own private lives. Only difference being is that whatever Khan does or says, he's under a fine microscope. And that's a lot to deal with for a kid being thrust into the limelight from such a young age. Nothing really prepares you for that. And for a community that really lacks role models in sport, I hope I've given people a real sense of perspective and understanding, especially for those who aren't from this same demographic where it's probably harder to appreciate how and why Amir Khan is one of the most important figures in British boxing and the British and the British Asian community. He actively challenged the status quo and beyond the Olympic achievements, beyond the world titles, when the lights turn off, when the fanfare and the boxing circus stop, there's a lasting, tangible legacy that's ingrained in the fabric of British sport as he's changed boxing in this country for good and given rise to a whole new crop of fighters. You know, sports, sport is always something that, not it's not shunned, but it's always been put on the back burner for Asian families as education has always been, been prioritized. But now we're seeing parents actively encourage their kids to put sport first if they're dedicated and if they're talented and have the work ethic. And there's been a real spillover effect in that regard as we're now seeing British Pakistani talent shine through in cricket with Moeen Ali, Adil Rashid, Haseeb Hamid. I'm not sure if he's Pakistani, but they've all earned national honors. Even in golf, where there's currently two Pakistanis in the England squad, I think one of them's just turned pro after a stellar amateur career. So I'll be keeping tabs on him. And, you know, maybe it's a matter of time before we see a star footballer who shines through the Premier League and plays for England. Who knows? What we do know is that the floodgates are open now. And whether you like Amir Khan or not, you can't ignore his importance and influence in sport. So if it is finally time to hang up gloves for him, he can hold his head up high knowing full well that he's played his part in inspiring a new generation. 
So that's it from you guys. We'll be back talking about trading stuff next episode. So don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, all that good stuff. And I'll see you next week. Peace.